you all sound great. You're really good at singing, too. I mean, reading the music and coming into the right parts. That was awesome. It's a good song. You know, those are great words to that song. Those guys, those are whoever you were, they're singing bass. That's a good line. It wasn't me, by the way. I dropped my head. But it didn't get any lower, but uh, yeah. Boy, good to be with you this morning. If you're joining us online, glad you're here as well. Um, I want to thank Daryl for doing such a great job last week and the blessing he was to all of us with the message that he shared. And I want to congratulate you all. You picked a great day to be here. You picked a really good day to be here because this morning, first, awesome worship, right? And then also this morning, we are starting a brand new sermon series. We're going to spend the next couple weeks, several weeks really, going back to the Old Testament and we're going to spend some time in the book of Judges. It's one of my favorite books. And there's a lot of reasons why I love the book of Judges. Some of you, a few of you, will remember that when we first came back uh, together after COVID, I guess we're still in the middle of COVID, I don't know, but when we first came back on Wednesday nights, I taught a quarter through the book of Judges. It was not very well attended. (laughs) Just go ahead and say that. We weren't quite ready to come back. But I kept thinking the whole time through that class, this is such a great book. This would make such a great sermon series. There's so many great lessons to be found in here. So this morning, we're beginning what's been kind of rattling around in my head for the last year and a half or so, and we're going to spend some time in Judges. I love the book. It's very story-driven, although we're not going to go story by story, except for today. Um, It's going to be a little bit more application by application, but it's just a a book that is, um, it's often depressing. It is sometimes disturbing. But it's always exciting. It's always unpredictable. And it gives us great insight into the ultimate judge, Jesus, the Messiah. And also great insight into how we can live our lives in a way to please God and and honor Him. So let me give you a little bit of real quick context uh, to this book. Um, It comes at a time in Hebrew history. The children of Israel have left Egyptian slavery. Remember Moses led them out of Egypt. And they went through the wilderness for 40 years. Then Moses dies. And it's Joshua who takes the children of Israel into the promised land. About 330 years later, once they're into the promised land, we come into the days of the kings. You know, Solomon, David, Saul went backwards there. Uh, so the time of Judges is that area between when the people of Israel get into the promised land and the kings that show up on the scene. And it's kind of an odd time for God's people. Because they're really, they're, they're acting more like a commonwealth than they are a nation. You know, they're the 12 tribes. 12 very distinct tribes coming from the sons of Jacob. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. But they're acting and living in different areas as 12 distinct tribes. They have a lot of things in common, for sure. But they're acting very distinctly as well. So you have these 12 tribes living in the promised land. There is no king because God is meant to be the king. And the way it was supposed to work was God was their king. And then God would raise up these judges. And their job was to interpret the law, enforce the law, and sometimes lead people into battle. And it turns out that during this time, the children of Israel had one of the same problems that we have today. 
They didn't like people telling them what to do. We don't like people telling us what to do, right? Guy gets into a taxi cab, and the cabbie says, I got the greatest job in the world. I'm my own boss. No one tells me what to do. The guy in the back seat says, turn right at this light. (laughs) We all have someone telling us what to do. We don't like to admit it, but let's face it. We all have someone telling us what to do. Uh, So at this time in Hebrew history, there's no king. There's no structured government. Everyone sort of did what they thought was the right thing to do, which led to a cycle that we see play over and over and over and over again all through this book of Judges. God's people drift away from God, and their disobedience leads to disaster. And then they cry out to God for deliverance. And God raises up a deliverer, and they live in peace until they drift away from God again and their disobedience leads to disaster and they cry out to God again and God leaves up another deliverer and they live in peace until they drift away from God just over and over. All through the book, that same cycle is taking place. Now, if you're paying attention, you already should be making some applications to our life, right? Now, when we don't do what God says, usually chaos sort of ensues. Um, But I actually want to begin this sermon series at the very end of the book of Judges. We're going to back up next week and we're going to start at the beginning. But today I want to begin the series at the very end of the book. Because at the very end of this book there is this outrageous story. And it's a story that I'm going to almost guarantee some of you have never heard before. If you've heard it, maybe you've forgotten it. Um, In fact, you're going to hear it and you're not going to believe it. It's, it's kind of a long story. I'm going to try to go as fast as I can through it. Uh, it's a crazy story that reflects just how bad things had gotten for God's people. And it reflects just what happens when people say, I'm going to do what I want to do. You do what you want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. You raise your family the way you want to raise your family. I'll raise mine the way. Don't tell me what to do. You mind your business. I'll mind mine. That's what's going on here in the time of the judges. And to a certain extent, that's a little bit what's going on in America today, isn't it? Hey, mind your own business. I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't tell me how to to, to live my life. Here is this outrageous story uh, that the book of Judges ends with. And I'm going to tell you right up front, this is not a PG story. This is an R-rated story. Okay, this is a story that we don't usually tell our kids. There's a Levite. We don't know his name. He's from the hill country of Ephraim, and he gets himself a girlfriend. We don't know her name either. All through this story, she is referred to as his concubine. Now, in Hebrew history, a concubine was kind of a girlfriend slash mistress slash wife slash servant. Kind of a complicated thing, but... But he has this concubine, and for some reason, she leaves him. She goes back to Bethlehem, a long way away, to be with her family again. Months go by, and this Levite decides, I kind of miss that girl. So he travels all the way down to Bethlehem to bring her back to him. He gets there, and her uh, father greets him warmly. But he says, you know what? You don't need to go right back. Stay a couple days, eat, drink, we'll get to know each other. So he stays several days. He says, I've got to leave tomorrow. But the father says, no, don't leave tomorrow. You're starting too late. 
eat, drink, we'll have a good time. So he does. The next day, he gets pretty late. He goes, i got to leave. No, don't leave now. It's too late. You don't want to start to leave now. Stay, eat, drink, we'll have a good time. So he does. This goes on day after day. Finally, this Levite says, I have to go. i got to leave. The father's like, no, don't leave now. It's too late in the day. You're not going to get ready. No, I've got to go. So he takes his concubine. He takes a, a manservant that he had with him. takes a couple donkeys. And they set out for home. But it's late in the day. And they don't get real far. And they do make the decision, though, we're going to spend the night in somewhere, a tribe of Israel. We're going to spend the night with Israelites. And so they make it to a town called Geba. It's in the, the region of Benjamin. It's in the tribe of Benjamin. In that culture, there was no Motel 6s, right? So the, the, the habit was you would go to the town square and someone in that town would show you hospitality. Someone would invite you into their home to spend the night. So this man and his concubine and his servant and his donkeys, they're sitting in the town square. Everyone ignores them. No one invites them home. No one gives them a place to stay. Finally, finally, an old man is coming out of the fields. He says, are you a stranger? Are you passing through? The, the Levite says, yes, I am. Where are you from? I'm from the hill country of Ephraim. The old man says, I happen to be from the hill country of Ephraim. Come stay with me tonight. Be my guest. The Levite says, listen, we're not going to cost you any money. We have, uh, we have provisions for ourselves. We have provisions for our donkeys. Be my guest in my home. So the man takes this Levite and his concubine and his manservant into his home. You with me so far? I know it's kind of a long story, okay? Stay with me here, because the story's about to get weird. In fact, actually, the story's about to get very dark. That night, a group of what Scripture calls evil men of Gibeah surround the man's house, and they start banging on the door. And they demand that, they, that that man release the Levite out to them so that they can sexually assault him. And the host there is saying, you can't do this. No, you can't do this. Do, he's beg, I beg you, don't do this terrible thing. But these evil men are relentless. So finally, and this is a whole other story, the Levite isn't released to this mob the concubine is. She is sent out. Now, I'm not going to go into the details. You can read it for yourself. But that poor woman is ravished all night long. In fact, Scripture says when they opened the door the next morning, she had somehow crawled to the threshold of the door. They opened the door, and there is this woman, and she's dead. So the, the Levite puts this dead woman on his donkey and he heads home. And he is angry. He is so angry. And he gets home and he decides something has to be done. There's got to be some kind of justice for how I was treated, how this woman was treated and murdered. So he decides, I'm going to write a letter to everyone in Israel, to all the tribes, and explain just what happened. But then he realizes, you know what? No one's really going to take a letter very seriously. So what he does is he takes this woman and he cuts her body into different pieces and he wraps up the body pieces and he sends a body piece with a letter to the, to the corners of the kingdom all through Israel 
So all the tribes are getting this body part of this murdered woman, along with a letter explaining what had happened. This Levite, who we don't know his name, saying some kind of action needs to be taken. All of Israel, by the way, is outraged. We have sunk to an all-time low. This is as bad as it could possibly get. In fact, here's their response. Then the entire nation was roused to action against the men of Benjamin because of this awful deed. There hasn't been such a horrible crime since Israel left Egypt, everyone said. We've got to do something about it. And they decide to do something about it. They come together, and all of Israel decides, we need to go to war with Benjamin, with the tribe of Benjamin. Now understand, they're not talking about attacking the Canaanites. Not talking about going to war with the Philistines. We need to go to war with our brothers, the tribe of Benjamin. And there's a lot of details to this. I'll skip over it for time's sake. But they do go to war, and bottom line, they pretty much obliterate the tribe of Benjamin. Tens of thousands, men, women, and children from the tribe of Benjamin are all killed, all slaughtered by other Israelites, by the rest of the tribes. The only, tri- the only people in the tribe of Benjamin who make it out alive are 600 men who escape and go off and hide. On top of that, all the other leaders of the other tribes say, let's take a vow, let's decide we will not allow any of our daughters to marry any of those 600 men who have escaped. That way there's no way for the, the tribe of J- Benjamin to ever come back. And they take that vow. A little bit of time goes by. The dust sort of has settled, that bloodlust has sort of receded. And those leaders get together and they say, what have we done? We wiped out a whole tribe. The tribe of Benjamin is going to be extinct. There's 600 men left, but we can't give them any of our daughters to marry. We've taken a vow. We've killed all of their women. What are we going to do? We shouldn't have done that. And someone says, was there any group that wasn't here when we were taking that vow? Someone else says, yeah, there was no one here representing Jabesh Gilead. Well, we need the women from Jabesh Gilead to come marry these 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin. So the Israelites get together, and they send an army to Jabesh Gilead with these instructions. Kill everyone there. I told you, this is an R-rated story. Kill everyone there, men, women, and children, with the exception of the young women. Bring them back, and we want to give them in marriage to these men of Benjamin so they can repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. And that's exactly what happens. They bring these women back. But there's not enough women. They're like a couple hundred women short. So now what are we going to do? Someone says, hey, you know, in Shiloh every year, there's a festival where the young women go out and they dance in the field. Let's tell these other couple hundred Benjaminites, just run out there and grab a girl. Just run out and grab one. That way, they haven't been given in marriage. They've just been kidnapped. We're okay with that. And that's exactly what happens. Those men of Benjamin, they hide in the bushes, and they run out in the field, and they grab a girl, I guess sling them over their shoulder, take them back as their wife. Now, you're probably expecting me to insert some joke right here about grabbing a girl and slinging her over your shoulder and making her your wife. 
But listen, there is nothing funny about this story. It is dark. It is twisted. It is tragic. It is, I, I think, the darkest chapter in Hebrew history. I mean, this really is as dark as it gets. Uh, by the way, years later, when Israel demands a king and God grants them a king, the very first king is a guy named Saul, which happens to be from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe that was almost wiped out. So that's how the book of Judges ends. That's how it ends. No heroes, no good news, nothing good happening at all. Martha and I have in our home several like children's Bible story books. Some are old enough that we read them to our kids. Some are newer that we read, we read to our grandkids when they're here now. I looked through those four or five books that I have in our home, just children's Bible story books. Not one of them have this story in them. None of them talk about the concubine and the sharp knife. Not one. I'm going to guess that, that Angie doesn't teach this story <laughs> to the kids in Faith Lane. No, we don't tell these stories. We don't tell this story to our kids because it's so dark and it's so tragic and it's so twisted. In fact, I actually kind of struggled with whether to share it this morning in a sermon. But that dark, twisted story perfectly sets the stage for what was going on with God's people by the time the book of Judges comes to a close. In fact, as it wraps up, the writer of this unbelievable story makes one final comment. The very last verse in the very last chapter of the book of Judges says, In those days Israel had no king, so the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The end. That's how the book ends, with that verse. In those days, Israel had no king. And because there was no king, because there was no ultimate authority, because there was no moral compass, people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In those days, there was no real conviction, this is right and this is wrong. This is what's acceptable, this is what is not acceptable. There was no moral compass at all. In fact, look back at the story that I just told. Every single person in that story, every decision they made was made on the premise of, seems right to me, seems okay to me, drop in anywhere in the story. Every person is making what they thought was an okay decision. Seems like a right decision to me. But then we step back and we look at all those right decisions and we see it, it, it's chaos. It was tragic, disaster. Now, here's why I am starting with this story and why I'm starting this series with this outcome. It's a little bit of this in you. And there's a little bit of this in me. A little bit of this in all of us. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it with whoever I want to do it with. Don't tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. When I want to do it with whoever I want to do it with. In fact, that's sort of the underbelly of the American dream, isn't it? Everyone deserves the freedom to do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, with whoever they want to do it with. But because we're 
because we're sophisticated and because we're enlightened, because we're politically correct, we add an addendum to that. Everyone deserves the freedom to do whatever they want to do, whatever they, whenever they want to do it, with whoever they want to do it with, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah, you've heard that, right? As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, you should be able to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. There's a couple problems with this forward-thinking philosophy. First, if you're going to live your life just doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it, you're going to need a really good attorney. Okay? That's just the truth. You're going to need some really deep pockets. You're going to need an army of lawyers. In fact, if your last name isn't Depp or Kardashian, you know, you're not going to get away with doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Because sooner or later, you're going to run into trouble. In the real world, you never find anyone with real life experience sharing, preaching this message. You just don't find anybody with real life experience say, do whatever you want to do. You never hear of a fifth grade teacher telling her kids on Friday afternoon, okay kids, this weekend just go do whatever you want to do. Don't listen to anybody. Don't obey any rules. Just go do it. No one says that, right? You don't hear this from a judge. A police officer doesn't stop you and say, oh, you want to do whatever you want to do? Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just do whatever you want to do. No. Okira, I'm going to guess in the military. You never hear, just do whatever you want to do. Whenever you want to do it, it's okay. No. Why not? Because people who live on the consequence side of the equation knows that's not feasible. That'll never work. The reality is you can't do whatever you want to do, whatever's right in your own eyes, without eventually hurting someone. Someone's going to be hurt. When there's no king, when there's no sense of right and wrong, when there's no real moral compass, someone's going to get hurt. This idea, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, whoever I want to do it with, as long as no one gets hurt, it's impossible to live that way. One of the reasons why it's impossible, one of the reasons why I'm so sure someone's going to get hurt, you're going to get hurt. If that's how you decide to live your life, you're going to get hurt. You're somebody, aren't you? Yeah, you're going to get hurt. Eventually, you're going to pay a very steep price. Something will eventually take over your life. You think about what you're struggling with right now. You think about where your heartaches are, where your frustrations are, and all those things that you wish were different. Uh, addiction that you might have had, uh, a relationship that's crossed a couple lines, decision you and your girlfriend made that you regret now, an estranged child, gambling debts, for that matter, a faith that's real shallow. All of those things can be traced back almost always to a decision that you made where you said, I'm just going to do what seems right. I'm just going to do what I think is the right thing to do. Your regrets can almost always be traced back to a decision that you made, I'm just going to do what I think is the right thing to do right now. But here's the really strange thing, especially if you're a Christian. Why would we even aspire to that? 
Why would we even make that our goal? Why would we like shooting for the bottom of the barrel, right? Like, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm probably going to hurt some people, and I'm going to mess up my life, and, you know, I'm going to make, you know, embarrass some family members maybe, disappoint some people, wreck some lives, but why would we do that? Here's something you never hear. Everyone should have the freedom to do what they want to do whenever they want to do it with whoever they want to do it with as long as it helps someone. You never hear that, do you? As long as it makes the situation better, as long as it blesses someone, we never say that, do we? Why, why are we thinking that, that you know, the, the gutter is such a noble place to shoot for? Somehow we've allowed ourselves to buy into this theory, this myth, that the Bible is just designed to keep us down. That the Bible is anti-fun. It's anti-freedom. It's anti-women. It's judgmental. It's archaic. All those things. Without realizing that the reason everything's in the Bible, the reason these stories are in the Bible, everything God writes is written to reconcile us back to him. To reconcile us back to the Father who created us. Every rule, every commandment, every encouragement is so that we'll live the life that God wants us to live. The good life. The full life. The Christ-honoring, Christ-following life. You know, we do things that is... um, it seems right in our own eyes. We make decisions. seems okay to me at the time. Very rarely does it lead to something that we're proud of. And one of the themes that you're going to see come up in this book over and over again in the next couple of weeks is every time God's people drift away from God, every time they, they disobey God, every time they, they, they turn their back on God, that same God, The same God who's been disobeyed, the same God who's been ignored, the same God who's been marginalized, the same God who's been replaced, that same God is willing to step into the chaos that they've made of their lives and pull them back out. That same God is willing to step in and redeem them again and again and again, over and over and over Guess what? It's the same God we serve. You know, I don't know. Sometimes I think, well, what would I do if I were God? Which is a scary thought. But what would I do if I were God? And the people that I love and the people that I create and the people that I'm trying to give everything to just keep ignoring me and disobeying me over and over again. What would I do? What would I do? Now, what is God going to do when people just keep disobeying and ignoring them over and over again? Well, come back next week. (laughs) We're going to talk about that for the next several weeks. What's God going to do? And what's it mean to me? For this morning, let me wrap up with this question. That cycle that I had on the board, uh, that cycle that we talked about, that the Israelites kept, they kept drifting away from God. Their life just, you know, ends up just in a terrible place. They cry out to God. God delivers them. There's peace over and over. Where are you on that cycle right now? 
Not your husband, not your wife, not your kids. Where are you on that cycle? You living in peace? Are you drifting away from God? Is your life in chaos right now? My challenge for you this morning is wherever you find yourself, fast forward to the crying out part. Just, just fast forward. Just go ahead and skip all the other stuff. Fast forward to the crying out to God. I don't know that we ever really cry out to God. Well, I know we do. We do the same time they did, by the way. When we, when we have nowhere else to turn, that's when we cry out. When we've tried everything that we can come up with, and it doesn't work, then we cry out. Skip all that. Cry out. Cry out to God. The same God who is still willing to step into that chaos, step into that heartache, step into that confusion, and deliver. He's still a deliverer. That's what God does. That's who he is. That's my challenge for this morning as we start this series. Listen, as a church family, if we can help you anyway this morning, if we can pray with you, if you have some things you want to share and have the church praying about it, uh, any way that we can help you, uh, we invite you to come to the front and we'll meet you there. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. Let's go ahead and be standing.